Welcome, baseball fans. It is time for a special off-the-bag edition of the Running the Bases podcast. I'm Tucker Wells, joined today by author and scholar Clayton Trutor. Clayton, how are you? Good, sir? Doing great. Thanks for having me today, Tucker. My pleasure, man. We've been talking about doing this for a while, and so finally the schedule is lined up. So happy to have you on, man. And Clayton, you're a uh, you're a writer for Down the Drive, the Cincinnati Bearcats blog on SB Nation, and you've been doing that for two years now. How is that going? It's going very well. I, I have a lot of freedom to uh, go in different directions. Sometimes I cover the teams in a very straight fashion. Other times I I have a tendency to write satirical articles about different things, and uh, my editor, Phil Neufer, has given me a lot of freedom to do that, and it's been a great place to write for the last couple of years. That's great. And how did you get connected with uh, Cincinnati? Because you're actually based in Boston. I am. I'm based in Boston. Yeah, and I I grew up in Vermont. Um, A couple of years ago, I got interested in the idea of writing for a sports blog, and I contacted SB Nation. I submitted a writing sample. And they gave me the choice of three different blogs that were looking for some kind of coverage at that point, some kind of uh, staff writer. There was Oregon State, there was Syracuse, and there was Cincinnati. I didn't know much about Oregon State. Growing up in Vermont, I knew a pretty fair amount about Syracuse. They're very frequently covered. Their football and basketball games are very frequently covered in the local media. They have some history with the University of Vermont, which is my alma mater, so I didn't want to be writing for Syracuse. Right. Thus, it ended up being Cincinnati. Um, I I had a little kind of vague connections to Ohio, so I had some some familiarity, a little more familiarity with Cincinnati than I did with with Oregon. Um, So I went in that direction. Yeah, Uh, and you know, do you do you focus more on basketball, the basketball program there? I know that that's a big deal in Cincinnati, and uh, the or just all things. When someone comes to your blog, can they expect to? to find out about all the different programs and elements of the Cincinnati Bearcats? Well, other people tend to be the basketball writers. I I actually cover women's basketball during the winter. Um, I feel like that's, there's a number of Bearcats blogs out there. I think that could use more coverage. I've tried to fill in that gap a little bit. During football season, I write a weekly prognostication column. I've taken on the nickname, the Miss Cleo of college football. I, it's kind of a satirical kind of, poking fun at the whole idea of prognostication columns uh, type affair. Uh, I, I write about football during the football season. Uh, I also uh, look around YouTube and find interesting uh, videos about either Cincinnati, uh, the city, or University of Cincinnati Athletics. I have a column called The Video Vault, in which I find unusual or interesting videos somehow related to Cincinnati and, and riff on them for a little bit on the blog. Nice. So those would be the different directions I tend to write in on the website. Nice, nice. Uh, I'm going to share this factoid about Cincinnati that you may or may not have known, but my father, the late, great Tom Wells, wrote the theme song for WKRP in Cincinnati. Oh, my Lord. That's wow. right. So what a that connection. A... You didn't even know. Oh, that is, first of all, that is a great song. Are you familiar with a, with a podcast called Beyond Yacht Rock? Uh, I am not. Do tell. Yeah, Yacht Rock is kind of, is this late 70s kind of jazzy, smooth music kind of a genre of Kenny Loggins, the Doobie Brothers, um, Michael McDonald, uh, Steely Dan. And, and, and these guys wrote this kind of uh, this this kind of web mockumentary uh, about uh, about their little universe kind of thing in the 70s. And they've turned it into a podcast where they 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 focus on this genre. And they talk about they very fondly talk about the WKRP theme as being one of the television examples wow. of this this of this genre. I mean, there were several themes. Taxi's theme kind of had a feel like that in the '70s as well. But WKRP's theme probably was the closest to what was going on with that contemporary strain of pop music. So I'd encourage you to listen and get in contact with those guys. They uh, yeah they are great enthusiasts of that theme. That's great. Yeah, we'll have to talk more about that. But you're here today because in addition to writing for Down the Drive, uh, you're a professor at Northeastern University. You're working on your Ph.D. Uh, You've recently published a book, and it's called Overcoming Adversity, Baseball's Tony Canigliaro Award. Um, And you co-wrote this with Bill Nolan or just uh, edited with Bill Nolan? 
I, I'm the co-editor with Bill Nolan. About 20 people contributed to the book. Uh, I'm the person who came up with the original idea for it. Uh, it uh, Last June, uh, I submitted this idea to the uh, Society for American Baseball Research's uh, biography committee, uh, biography, I guess biography project, it's called. Um, since 2002, Sabre has been trying to create a comprehensive biography of all 18,000 men who've played Major League Baseball. Uh, wow. They've had quite a bit of success in this task. They've published, at last count, 4,021 biographies. Uh, so there's certainly a, quite, a, quite a ways there. Um, these, are, these are all available online in a digital database. Um, also, as part of this project, Sabre has created books um, like this book. Some of them are topical like this. There's another topical one about Cuban baseball legends. Some of them focus on specific teams providing a biography of every player. I've contributed to, to projects about the 79 Pirates, the 1970s A's, the Gas House Gang Cardinals, the 51 Giants, among others. Uh, these books uh, offer an opportunity for people to participate, to get their name in print, and also be a part of this process of getting towards writing a biography of everybody. Sabres published several dozen of these, these edited volumes of biographies, uh, thematic ones, over the past 10 or 15 years. Uh, this is one of the more, uh, more recent ones. Um, yeah, and it's really great because you chronicle every single recipient of the Tony Canigliaro Award. And, uh, you know, it's one of the more prestigious awards in, in the sense of players who are proud to, to receive it. Um, and, uh, you know, tell us a little bit more about like how you came to want to write this particular book. And, um, obviously, uh, you're from new England and Red Sox yes. fan your whole life. Absolutely. Yes. Well, Tony Canigliaro has been a, a very special figure in new England ever since he was a, became a major leaguer in 1964. He was a teenager in the major leagues, almost immediately became a big star for the Red Sox. He was a native of Swampscott, Massachusetts, which is just down the road from Boston. New Englanders took him on as one of their own uh, and really took great pride in his success. Uh, I think also for baby boomers from New England, he was really the first baby boomer to become a major league star. And additionally, so for people of that generation, my, my, my parents' generation, he has a cultural significance not only as a New Englander, but as being a, a peer as well. Uh, and as a result, his career took on a very special meaning in New England and the, the tragedy which befell him when he was uh, hit in the face by a pitch by Jack Hamilton of the Angels in August of 67, which uh, nearly killed him and uh, partially blinded him, uh, had particular resonance uh, throughout New England. Um, I, I, I became interested in, in pursuing a project with Canigliaro after reading a recent uh, biography by a man named David Cataneo about uh, uh, Canigliaro. And um, I'd been a part of the Sabre biography project for, for several years. I've written about a dozen of them at this point. And they were seeking out suggestions, the leadership was seeking out suggestions for more books. And I contacted Bill Nolan, my co-editor, as well as Mark Armour. Those are the two men who have really got the, the project going and suggested the idea and Bill, who has shepherded about two dozen of these books uh, from beginning to end, uh, became my um, co-editor and really the driving force behind getting this done. Bill is remarkable at just getting on a task like this and uh, bringing it to fruition. Bill's written or edited about 25 books at this point. Um, most of them have some aspect to being related to the Red Sox, um, Sabre, in recent years has published a lot of Red Sox books in part because the, the local chapter here is um, uh, very activist, very willing to get involved with projects. So people will look at the list of books and see all of these different biography project books about the Red Sox in part because that's, there's the most um, act activity by, by the membership around here in getting these projects going. Uh, yeah. They would love to produce more and more books about different and different cities. But there have been many Red Sox books as a result of the local enthusiasm for this in the oh, local chapter. Sure. The Red Sox are kind of known for having some passionate fans. Yes, yes. But to all those, young, right. all those young writers out there listening in Miami and San Diego, you know, jump on it. Get, get some representation for the Padres. 
and the Marlins and well, others. Absolutely. I think um, there have been a couple times when people have talked about doing books about expansion teams the first year of that particular team. I think like a an inaugural one for the Padres or the Expos or something would be a great topic. And uh, a lot of those biographies wouldn't have been written already, too, because they would have been guys with relatively brief major league careers, many of them. So right. I think that would be a great contribution if uh, people got on board with that. But there are a w- wide range of topics covered. Not surprisingly, there's several Cubs books, several Cardinals ones. It's really just yeah. a matter of there being people willing to shepherd the projects from beginning to end. Absolutely. Well, so of all the different works that you've published through Sabre, I mean, this one has to be close, much closer to the heart. You know, growing up as one of those Red Sox fans, you know, they do love their own. And, you know, he's kind of the the quintessential Boston, uh, yeah, the local kid, born and raised. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and you know, Canigliero is known throughout baseball. He's one of the great what-ifs, uh, if not for getting beamed uh, in the eye and, and, and knocked out in that incredible 67 season. You know, if he had been in that World Series, which you talk about in the early chapters, uh, Red mm-hmm. Sox could have a have that trophy from 1967. Oh, absolutely. I mean, those the, that team, the Cardinals team was a great team, but those clubs were very close. I mean, they had a little bit different uh, they had a little bit different areas of of, uh, of skill and expertise, but it, it was a great World Series, and who knows what could have happened. Um, it's tough to bet against Bob Gibson in Game 7, though. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why, you know, love to the Detroit Tigers, who I'm a secret, not-so-secret fan of. Uh, the 68 World Series was such an incredible feat for that very reason. Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, they the, the Canigliero is one of the great what-ifs, not just for that year, but, you know, he was the youngest, uh, uh, what is it, The he was the first teenager to hit more than 20 home runs in his major league. Youngest home run champion in the American League. Right. Uh, youngest to hit 100 home runs. He has a number of these these early career type accolades that he is the uh, he's the front runner on. So when you're growing up as a Red Sox fan, I mean, when did you first become aware of Canigliaro? How how quickly are you aware of Canigliaro and his life in the Red Sox? And I became aware of him on Christmas morning, 1989, when I pulled a VHS tape out of my stocking entitled "Yaz from Fenway to Fame." Carl Ustremski had just been inducted into the Hall of Fame that uh, that August, and WSBK, which was one of the local stations which broadcast the Red Sox games at that point, before Nesson took the whole thing over, produced a 45-minute video detailing Yaz's career, which focused to a great extent on the impossible dream season, and it had all kinds of highlights of that year with Canigliaro and Yaz and uh, George Scott, among others leading that team to the pennant. Um, and I became a fan of Canigliaro instantly from then, just based on, on that film. Um, approximately a month and a half after I received that, Canigliaro died. So he became a, a major uh, topic in the local media all of a sudden, soon after I'd become, uh, become aware of him. Uh, and as a result of that, he, he, he always stuck with me um, as one of the great... Uh, players in Red Sox history, and I saw as a young boy how much that affected my parents and other people of their generation who had, who had adored Canigliaro during his playing career. Right. Um, and right. as an adult, I, I kind of circled back to that interest and uh, and uh, pursued this as a topic for this uh, book. Yeah, I mean, as you're, as you're becoming aware at that young age, I mean, he had been in poor health. It, it, as you talk about in the book, it was not only his his playing career that got cut short by injury and you know (laughs) props to Canigliaro he hung in the box he crowded the plate he made the pitchers come in and that's a level of fear fearless that I don't think even people who have played baseball can appreciate that oh absolutely I I can't imagine after what he went through just getting back up there and getting in the box like that I mean it's a it's a remarkable story. I mean, as they are of many of the guys covered in the book. I mean, it's uh, there have been many people who have had lives very similar to, to Tony Canigliaro's. Uh, one one that comes to mind immediately for me is Dickie Thon from the Astros, who was also a young, right. emerging, excellent ball player. He got hit in the face with a pitch early in his career, became partially blinded as a result of it. Eventually, he made a comeback and was the second recipient of this award. 
So there have been other people who've had this this similar situation, but it's a it's a very striking thing, certainly. Right, and so the second half of the Canigliaro myth is that in 1982, correct, is when he has a heart attack. Yes, and he's in the hospital, leaves him with partial brain damage, and then that's effectively, you know, his his for the last eight years of his life, he's struggling with that. So as you're, you know, getting to know him in 1989, you know. Boston and New England has known of his struggles for the seven years prior to that. Yes. At your age, you were talking about, you know, seeing how it affected everyone around you. Could you comprehend just the gravity or did that come later in life as you were revisited Tony's life? Keeping in mind, I I was in, I was in Vermont, which is a bit on the periphery of the absolute core of, of the media coverage of the Red Sox. I don't know that, I mean, I think people were aware locally that he had had this tragedy in 1982. I think the ongoing aspect of it was not necessarily well known until he died, uh, at least at least locally. That may have been different in Boston. I can't really speak to that. Um, but I think the moment of his death, more so than the eight years uh, between the heart attack and his actual death, that was really when the outpouring came at, at the moment of his death. I think also it was... You know, it was 1990. It was a quarter of a century later. The people who had loved him as teenagers were were adults with families and careers at that point. I, I think it was um, it, it provided people with a moment to reflect on their lives and uh, and the meaning of their youth. Certainly, certainly, that's great. So, in putting this book together, you have uh, you go through chapter by chapter each recipient of the award from its first awarded in 1990 and then up to 2016. I mean, you look at the names of some of the people who have received the award. You mentioned Dickie Thon, but there's Bo Jackson, uh, Brett Saberhagen, Mike Lowell, uh, John Lester, famously, and as a Red Sox as well, which was, I'm sure, uh, you know, made it extra sweet. Absolutely. Uh, John Lackey, Wilson Ramos, incredible story about Wilson Ramos being kidnapped. Oh, it, uh, yeah, absolutely. But you have a I mean, different... You... Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, I was uh, getting to, you have... Uh, essentially a different author for each year and each player. So mm-hmm. what was the process to reach out to? Uh, Cause that's 36. Am I right? Do I have my math right? 26, 26. That's 26 different authors that you're trying to pull together. And, and, and this is a lot of research. So, you know, what describe that process? What was that process like? I, I, I Bill, Bill Nolan wrote, deserves most of the credit for that. He is the person with the experience in terms of editing these volumes and is really the person who guided much of this, much of the, the, the project uh, in terms of that stuff uh, to fruition. Um, Saber has a core of authors who very frequently volunteer their time to contribute to these, uh, to these projects. I would suggest that most of the people who have contributed to this book have written at least one, if not many other biographies. Um, there's a process to it. Uh, once one becomes familiar, familiar with the research and then the writing style, uh, we expect out of them. Um, we develop, we've developed a core of people who are the most frequent contributors to these books. If you look at any of our volumes, you'll see some of these names over and over again, people who are very committed to participating in the biography project. Um, if you Google any of these people, you'll find the list of other Sabre biographies they've written. Some have written a handful. Bill Nolan has written hundreds and hundreds of them. It takes five minutes to scroll down the list of all of the different biographies he's written. He's written biographies of players who had one career at bat. He's written biographies of Hall of Famers. Um, it's, it's a significant effort that has been made by a lot of different people to, in a comprehensive way, create biographies of all of these different uh, major league players. Did you find that any one player was difficult to reach or get them to maybe talk about and contribute directly uh, to the to the book overall? Well, I mean, a handful of the players, people, people uh, were in contact with them. Sometimes they relied more on the media accounts of these players' careers to create the biographies and compile the information. Certainly. So it really depended on the person. Um, certainly we weren't, we weren't in contact with, with, with all of these players. Um, right. And then when it came to, and again, maybe this fell on Bill Nolan, your partner in this endeavor, um, this particular endeavor. Um, but 
you know, the, the, the decision to who would be writing about which player, um, is that also you, you essentially throw it out there on the, on the light board of Saber and, and see who, oh, who, yeah, who steps up for it serve kind of thing. So was it interesting to find, you know, who the biggest Dewan Brazelton fan was in the world? Couple of Tony Campana, Dewan Brazelton, some of the less well-known guys, it took a little longer to get them than, say, Saber Hagen or Bo Jackson or R.A. Dickey or somebody. They often have some of the more interesting stories. I think Brazelton's story in particular is interesting because in many respects it is the adversity he faced was a lifelong thing. He had an incredibly difficult childhood um, and persevered through it and uh, made a major league pitcher out of himself. Um, his is among my uh, his is among my favorite stories in, in, in the book, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the guys, I mean, sometimes if there's less information about a guy, it's it may actually be easier to write about them. You can kind of you can kind of build a much more concise narrative about them than trying to trying to write about the career of someone like Brett Saberhagen, who played a long time in a lot of different places and was a and was a you know a media figure figure of significance for a fair amount of time, or even more so someone like Bo Jackson, trying to to uh, distill Bo Jackson's career uh, down into you know a fifteen hundred word two thousand word biography, is a very difficult thing. Um, I actually when I select people, I tend to pick less well known players because of that. Um, probably the most well known player I've done a biography about was. Uh, for the 79 Pittsburgh Pirates book I did, Mike Easler. That took me, I mean, he had, a, he had a very long, successful career. Writing that one took me as long as probably writing three or four of players who had lesser careers, just because there was so much information out there about him uh, to, to cover in the book or to cover in that particular biography. Um, so I, I don't envy the task of picking one of the better known guys in these uh, projects. Right, right. Um, certainly, when you're talking about Bo Jackson, I mean, there have been thirty for thirties, full documentaries sure. done on him, and so it's like, where, you know, how do you edit that down to essentially eight pages? Um, yes. So it is, yeah, a daunting task to say the least. Um, as this project was completed, as you completed the book, what was the takeaway? What was the takeaway from the whole experience that? You weren't expecting. I, I think I think simply seeing the struggles that a lot of these different people persevered through, the adversities that they overcame, was in itself inspiring. Reading all of these different accounts in detail. I mean, when I when I when I started the project, I had a list of the names. I had a vague idea. I, I came across a vague idea of what the issues that these different guys had faced. But actually going through and reading the accounts of them is is a very moving thing. Uh, and makes me feel like a very uh, grateful, uh, very blessed person. Uh, right. When you when you look at your own life in comparison to being kidnapped. Absolutely. It, it, yes. It puts certain things in perspective. So, Absolutely. It, I, I believe in the power of uh, books like yours and in kind of helping people appreciate their lives to a greater level. Um, oh, and I think this year's winner, Yang Hervis Solarte on the uh, Padres in particular, with his wife dying of cancer during the season, leaving their three children without a mother, having having a baseball comeback amid that. I mean, that's that's a particularly heartbreaking story. Um, and uh, as many of them are in the book, uh, Mark Leiter, who I wrote about, had a had a child die right after he'd been released by the Tigers uh, in 1994. Uh, later that season made a comeback and made the rotation with the uh, California Angels. Um, but yeah, unspeakable tragedy that many of these uh, uh, young men uh, faced during their uh, careers. And, you know, I I think that that's triumph on the baseball field. You know, you make the comparison between this particular award, how the Canigliero Award speaks directly to that personal life uh, um, overcoming adversity more than the on the field, whereas the standard comeback player of the year, not standard, but the traditional comeback player of the yeah. year is focused in on the just someone coming back from an injury, essentially. Yeah, like, a return to past performance kind of kind of thing. Yeah, and Justin Verlander is a recent example. I mean, you know, his personal life is pretty rock solid, and, and so <laughs> you might not be it, – it's not – not apples to apples but the inspiration that you can pull from these players that win this specific award uh i i 
feel is so far greater because I think people, especially now, you look at how much money certain uh, ball players are making, and it's more than the gross domestic product of certain small countries. Oh, you, no doubt. <laughs> and you think that, like, well, there's no way anybody playing professional baseball has any problems off the field. Um, and this really brings it into perspective. Um, Absolutely. Um, I, th I think one thing that's great also is that the teams nominate the players. Uh, right. As a result, I think about, I think, 19 or 20 players were nominated. By, not every team nominates somebody. But there were about 19 or 20 nominations. Every one of them would have been a legitimate re recipient for the award, had gone through different physical uh, uh, adversity or gone through personal problems or had come back from an injury or had dealt with some kind of a chronic condition. Uh, I mean, there are remarkable stories throughout baseball, not dissimilar to the ones of the men who've won this award. Certainly. And I think you see with players, again, their appreciation for awards such as this, the Roberto Clemente award, the Walter Payton award in, uh, um, in uh, football, you know, these are the awards that are becoming so much more important. Oh, absolutely. And I think in people frequently will speak negatively about the expansion of the media into different aspects of celebrities' lives and people's lives. And I understand that critique entirely. But in some respects, the expansion of the media has made it possible for people to relate to some of these, you know, celebrities to, to you know, as human beings to a far greater extent. And I think awards like this, awards like the Walter Payton Award, um, the awareness that the public has of people overcoming uh, tragedies and adversity of different kinds has been a largely positive thing. Yeah, and you do. I mean, just the the climate of the times, there's such a, a, a loss of human compassion for the human the human experience that a sure. life journey is about suffering so much of the time. And that uh, definitely gets forgotten when you're talking about people who are in the public spotlight and celebrity and uh, in sports in particular. But, you know, it's tough out there for for Bryce Harper. He just may not know it yet. And, yes. you know, that's, I think, another great aspect of who wins this award is that someone like a Bo Jackson, top five what if in sports history were it oh, not absolutely. were it not for that hip injury and having to have the hip replacement surgery he could have broken every record in two different leagues yes yeah but you know he found uh, a greater appreciation for life maybe a greater appreciation for his own self um by coming through that adversity still having a career post-surgery and then you know he he gives it back it's just wonderful the world the world needs this <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I mean, right about he's, now. He's, he has a unique mystique, certainly. Um, one thing that I, I guess as, as I'm getting older that I think about more with the guys covered in this book is how young they are when they're encountering these things. Right. These men, 23, 24 years old, are having to make very difficult decisions, having to, uh, to uh, overcome all of these different situations. It's remarkable to me the strength uh, that they have as, they, as they've... Uh, dealt with these different situations right um and as you're writing the book i mean it, it all told start to finish or i guess from the green light to completion uh, how long did it take it took about this was i mean it's a relatively slim volume it's about 200 pages um it took about eight months i mean which is about as quick as this kind of a thing could go sure. um it uh from the project being um first conceived to seeking out authors is from last spring until January of, of, uh, of 2017. Uh, it, it was a very quick turnaround. Some of the other books we've done have taken longer in part because they've been much larger volumes. Uh, for example, the book we did about the early 1970s Oakland Athletics has 50-something biographies in it. It's a 400-something page book. Uh, it took a couple of years to complete because there's a lot more moving parts when there's all those more people uh, a part of the book. In many respects, this was a more concise, in some ways easier to complete um, project than some of the other really gargantuan undertakings that the Saber Biography Project uh, has, has done in book form in recent years. Sure. And that must have been kind of nice, too, to to have the uh, the subject matter be pretty well outlined you go year by year oh absolutely player by yeah player. I mean, have, less than a year later having having a book in my hand was is a pretty great feeling 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it never gets old considering, you know, you've written books before this and will most certainly, uh, at least I hope so, uh, will continue to write well, this, after this. Is, this. This, is, this is my first book. I, I, oh, okay. I uh, Hopefully I turn my doctoral dissertation into a book uh, at some point, but uh, I, I have some other ideas too. But uh, this is the first one where my name has been on the spine. Certainly. Yeah. But but correct me if I'm wrong, clarify that b- before publishing and working on this specific book you had worked on others correct other yes yeah i mean i had other... a, i had a ch- i had a chapter i mean in in these other volumes in about 12 of them right but, uh Certainly. this is my first one where my name was on the outside as opposed to just on the inside there you go so have you been to the uh the recipient dinner before where they I, I went to the recipient dinner this year yes and saw solarte get his award which was which was great um yeah. To kind of I mean, describe just, describe that experience. I mean, what was the feeling in the room? What was that like? Well, it's it's a large dinner. It's called the Boston Baseball Writers Dinner. Uh, it happens or Boston Baseball Writers Awards Dinner. It happens every January. It takes place in a large um, in a large ballroom in uh, at a hotel in Boston. There are many hundreds of people there. A uh, lot of well known uh, well known baseball figures were on the dais. I mean, Theo Epstein was there. John Farrell was there. Bogarts, um, Louis Tiant was there, and Solarte, among others, uh, on the uh, on the stage there as a part of this this, this ceremony. It was uh, it was a very uh, it was a very moving when he when he won his award. Um, Richie Canigliaro, who is the brother of Tony Canigliaro, uh, his youngest brother, who played the minor leagues, uh, presented the award to him, and uh, it was clear that that this whole process, this whole annual award still has deep meaning to the Canigliaro family and uh, is an important part of their lives. Would you say, where does Canigliaro rank in the history of favorite Red Sox players? For me personally or for Red Sox fans in general? Uh, For you personally and then for Red Sox fans in general. Since you're from the area, from New England, you have a greater feel for the pulse of it than those of us who, you know, kind of observe Red Sox Nation through ESPN (laughs) and whatnot. He would be on my Mount Rushmore, certainly. There my favorite go. player as a boy was Mike Greenwell. So I, I think I'd have Greenwell, Canigliaro, Yaz, and... Uh... You have to throw Ortiz in there now, right? I mean, Ortiz is great. I don't know that he was my favorite specifically. But, right. uh, I mean, he's certainly the most popular player around here uh, Around here now. I really like Marty Barrett, who was a second baseman in the 80s. too. Marty Barrett, favorite. Nice. Good a get, friend of mine has a Marty there. Barrett bat. He when Barrett was briefly with the Padres, somehow somehow acquired that. I'm very envious of it. Well, Greenwell, one of my favorite baseball cards that I collected growing up was a Mike Greenwell '91 Fleer, where it was one of these baseball cards that had a special like it was like a, a painting, um, and the green monster is in the background, and it's actually a monster. And, I don't uh, think I've ever seen that card. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to Google that. I will. That. I will send you one because I made sure to trade for doubles amongst my friends. Oh wow! But it, oh wow, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, but Greenwell was one of my favorites by proxy. If he just had one of the coolest baseball cards <laughs> in my collection, so it's a shame that he didn't produce for longer because yes, uh, he was definitely a a fan favorite. I'm sure. So oh, definitely. And I I think also the the '88 season he had where he showed quite a bit of power. He wasn't really a power hitter, and I think people right. kind of got, you know, he was kind of guy who's going to hit 300, might hit 10 or 15 home runs, but because he had the big power surge, the one year people expected out of him out of that on a regular basis, and it, I think it just wasn't the player that uh, that he was. Um, I find those late '80s Red Sox teams to be a little bit of a what if thing too. I mean, if you get Greenwell and Ellis Burks and some of those guys together, that that would have been. I mean, who knows what could have happened, but. Uh, yeah, and in a time where the American League was still, it it was kind of open for the taking. Oakland, of course, was just dominant, but they were in the West, and you know the Yankees were non-existent at that time. So, yeah, yes, definitely. I think you look at '86, and we don't have to talk about that for too much. I know it's still. Oh, we have a oh well, Saber. We have a book. I forgot about this one. We have a book that is both the '86 Mets and the '86 Red Sox in biography form. I did Glenn Hoffman, Trevor Hoffman's brother for that one, who was a second baseman for the Red Sox in the in the 80s. It was a very good player. He uh, had some injury problems, which, which shortened his career. But Glenn Hoffman was a very good major leaguer for several years. 
Sure, absolutely. I mean, 86, from my perspective, is completely John McNamara's fault. Uh, right, Buckner shouldn't have been out there with those knee problems. You could have stuck right. anybody else out there and play in first base. And, it just, you know, Bill Buckner had a great career. It's very unfortunate that that became the way he was uh, he was thought of. Um, well, look, I as a as a long suffering fan of the uh, Atlanta sports teams and having watched this previous super, the most recent Super Bowl, I mean, you you do have to appreciate that. Yeah, it comes down to the to to decisions just like that, and you know, absolutely, and and but the pressure, the pressure of that moment. How do you? how do you really relate that to somebody who's yeah, not there and exactly the Red Sox and all the tortured history. And, and, and this is what's so incredible about 2004. Um, even, I think even if you're a, a diehard Red Sox hater, I, I, I don't understand how looking at 2004 doesn't warm your heart to, to even the smallest amount. But at any rate, you know, the pressure of the trying to get those last three outs, you know, I mean, the Falcons in this past Super Bowl it was like just trying to get those last few yards, yeah. those last couple of first downs. And so, you know, I, I'm I'm happy to see over the years how there's been this uh, uh, mea culpa about how people treated Buckner and, and pinning it yes. on him. Um, but really, it should be for the entire team because you do crazy stuff like have a role as Chapman pitch three innings when you're trying to win mm-hmm. a World Series. So there you go. Yeah, it's yeah, it, I, I I agree entirely about that, and uh, I hope the Falcons are back. I you know they were a fun team to watch, and uh, yeah, it was really too bad the way that all ended this year. Yeah, well, I'm no Patriots fan. I'm actually a New York Jets fan, so that uh, oh wow, there's, there's there's no well, my mom adores Joe Namath, was a Jets fan. I my mom was the bigger sports fan in the house, so as a result, I I, I became a part of the uh, part of the Jets. Uh, there's no such thing as Jets Nation. I kind of hate that whole name. Even with the Red Sox thing, I kind of don't like that whole "quote unquote" nation thing. I think it's kind of silly. Right. I'm part of the you know Jets fandom. The Jets are only the most popular team I think in one county in the United States. <laughs> well, you know the interesting thing about the Jets, and I've always had a soft spot for them because you have to appreciate when a shooting star comes along that just changes the landscape. And it's like, yeah, the jets have been notoriously terrible for years and years and years, mm-hmm. but super bowl three hangs in, in the entire American North American sports lore. I mean, you have that to take with you no matter what. And that's really hard to, you know, quantify. I, I mean, oh. he, here in Atlanta, it's it's all about Hank Aaron and seven fifteen. You know, mm-hmm. you can say whatever you want about our troubles as a sports town or whatever, but we could always hang our hat on that fact that that the somebody who was such a vital part of just baseball history and and owned such a, a hallowed record, he was he was ours. He was our guy. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. and your team in the Jets is forever tied to one of the big watershed moments in history the upset the guarantee you know the afl is now officially relevant or the afc Mm -hmm. at that point so you know you can take that with you you can you can throw that out at any bar bar room argument oh absolutely uh the other thing with the jets is anytime they are really good at our are moving on to the playoffs like the couple of times when with rex ryan when they got to the afc title game i i had a real fear that they would get to the Super Bowl and lose. I think there's something special <laughs> about not losing in the Super Bowl. I don't want to get there unless they're going to go and just obliterate their opponent. Don't tell me that. <laughs> You're not gonna... well, you, I mean, you guys have been twice. I mean, you've been to the Super Bowl uh, more than us. Well, that's uh, true. But the whole thing about getting there and being afraid to lose, I mean, you know, you have to be accepting. Oh, and, I, and, I, and listen, because I, we got a lot of – we got a lot of love in Atlanta that came from sources about how, how heartbreaking that was. But, you know, I still think that if you told the other 30 teams that they would be playing in the Super Bowl, but they'll lose in a traumatic way, they'll still take it because. Yes. I, oh yeah. You're right. You're right about that completely. Yeah. So I, I just know. like the idea of the jets being special in there, uh, um, being one and oh in the Super Bowl. Um, aspect of it ah, i see ah okay makes sense now you're trying not to ruin the perfect record exactly it's all about it's all about that yeah understood completely all right well the book is great it's a really engaging read uh you gotta be incredibly proud of the work you put into it yourself and uh bill nolan so 
It's Thank called you. uh, you're you're welcome. Thank you. It's called uh, Overcoming Adversity Baseball's Tony Canigliaro Award. And uh, where can one find this book? If you head over to Amazon.com, you can either get the book in paper form or on a Kindle or in Kindle form. Uh, if you're a member of the Society for American Baseball Research, you can also get it as a free digital download as part of their digital library, along with all the other books of the Sabre Biography Project, as well as the various other Sabre uh, book projects that are out there. That's great. So go find it on Amazon. Everybody's got Amazon now, right? It's like, yeah, I think so. It's yeah. required. I think every American, it's part of <laughs> a social security number, a Netflix account, and Amazon. So I, but, I think Netflix is in trouble, though. I mean, I, I look around and sometimes have a tough thing, time finding something to watch there. Right. Um, the endless browsing. But, you know, it's a. Uh, it's an amazing entity when you consider, you know, that they flip a switch and suddenly the exact same product without having to invest anything to re, you know, to add more units, so to speak, is available yeah. in the entirety of China. Like you can't, you can't invent a business model like that. I mean, yeah, people, I guess people are yeah, taking off little pieces. People are taking off little pieces of the edge of it with Hulu. And there's this new thing called sure. Filmstruck, which is really great. Which is, oh, if I've you're interested in classic cinema, it's it, it's uh, done by Turner Classic Movies and is really focused on that. So I, th I think they'll continue to be the big guy, but little pieces of their business seem to be getting cut off. Sure. Well, you know, the, 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 the Netflix uh, falls into one of those unicorn kind of uh, entities. Um, and Uber mm -hmm. was thought to be that as well. But you see what's going on with them right now and like the, the, yes. sur the surge in Lyft membership. So. Yeah, nothing's bulletproof. I will say that Amazon is kind of brilliant. I actually heard from a uh, a podcast, one of Bill Simmons' podcasts, from um, this big tech writer, and I'm I'm mad that I'm blanking on the name, but essentially that Amazon is taking a a, a cut off of everything. <laughs> Interesting. Clothes, electronics, books, you know, mm. you name it. They basically are taking a percentage of everyone's success, and it's kind of amazing to think about. I don't want to know how what it took. Jeff Bezos and company to build such a thing. Uh, but it is kind of remarkable. But thankfully, due to their success, we can find your book there, uh, which it's, is yes, wonderful. It's a pretty wonderful thing. It is. It's a wonderful thing, a wonderful time to be alive. So Overcoming Adversity, Baseball's Tony Canigliero Award, available on Amazon.com. So how about the World Baseball Classic, though? Have you uh, been following that as well? What an exciting tournament. I hope it comes back in 2021. This is the most I've ever paid attention to it, actually. Um, it's yeah, I, I've enjoyed the games I've seen. I've been I was impressed by the crowds at the Tokyo Dome. I mean, they really had good, enthusiastic crowds. Oh sure, uh, at those games, to say the least. I, well, yeah, I always had the perception that they were like very tiny, and I guess they are in some of the places. But that was I'm like I yeah I perceived it as being like when they had like, like the Olympic trials and there were nine people in a fifty thousand seat stadium. But it certainly wasn't like that at all in the pool that was in Japan, which was, right. was great. And yeah, it was uh, very entertaining, the, the games I saw. I saw a couple of uh, Team Israel's games, the, the Netherlands. Yes. It was great. I mean, it was, a very, it was very entertaining what I saw. Well, Team Israel running the bases, myself specifically, has a very uh, close bond with that team. And, and, and they really s signify what's great about the World Baseball Classic. Who would have known? I mean, who knows? Who would have known just how much passing there is in the country of Israel, and uh, you know, with the the Jewish community across the world, mm -hmm. uh, and then you see something like what they did in this tournament and the outpouring of support, and it, it, it's wonderful. And yeah, you know, you see just passion for baseball on such a stark display, if you will, um, center stage where I think baseball gets a bad rap for being too corporate, you know, absolutely. And being a game that's focused just in a few countries, it demonstrated sure. the passion and the skill there is for it in so many different places, which was great. Absolutely. Yeah. And those Tokyo dome crowds, I mean, Japan, that's a top of the bucket list as far as where to travel to see some mm -hmm. baseball. And, you know, you think about international tournaments in particular, uh, takes it to the next level. I think that that's a big reason why you saw the crowds, the sizes that they were. And I, I'm just amazed that they're allowed to play music on trumpets <laughs> during during the while the while the ball is in play, so yes. to speak. I mean, imagine if you're at Reds, if you're at Yankee Stadium, and every time the 
the Reds. Uh, every time, uh, you know, I guess Chris Sale now is on the mound, you're hearing a trumpet band. So maybe that's what oh, we very, need. Very different environment. Yeah. I think it's kind of great that they have their own thing, their own baseball culture. I wish they had it there every time. It'd be great. It just seems like a great right. environment for the game. Right. It's definitely one of the staples. I mean, watching the game in Miami, though, with the Dominican Republic and versus the United States, I mean, that, yeah. was, that was crazy. I, I can't imagine another situation where you're having an international tournament on one of the major sports across the world and it's in your backyard but you're the underdog the crowd yeah. is for the other remarkable. team it's really yeah, I, I, what a yeah. sight yeah what a sight indeed so give me some predictions for the red sox this year as you see it with uh with spring training this far Are you worried about david price yes yeah and i'm, I'm worried about chris sale too i They've had they've had some somewhat unstable guys at different times in recent years. He probably I, I mean he's a very successful player on paper. It's a very good move. I question some of the locker room dynamics of it. I guess um, I hope the team will be a little more offensively consistent this year. They tended to either score ten runs or two runs. Hopefully that young core of talent with Bradley and Betts and Bogarts and Holt and Benintendi and everybody else. We can see some offensive consistency among them. So game to game, pitchers aren't either getting ten runs when they don't need it, or can't get a third run when they need it to uh, to to win the games. Oh, sure. um, I think Mitch yeah. Moreland was a very good uh, off season acquisition at first place, at first base, a very stable presence over there to to platoon with Hanley. Um, I expect good things, but I really don't know. I mean, it could be it could be 2012 or it could be 2013. It's tough to know. Barring injury, barring you have injury. to you have to say that with baseball, I think louder than any other sport. I mean, well, yes. basketball. I mean, you look at the, like in the NBA right now with what's going on with the Warriors; they seem very beatable, minus Kevin Durant. But Absolutely. you know, yeah, with the Red Sox, man, I, I hope that you never want to think that you're gonna you're gonna regret something uh, when the trade happens. Certainly, Chris Sale is a top of the you know top of the rotation on any team. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe except the Dodgers, but yeah. Jan Moncada having to give him up. What was traded to get Drew Pomerantz, that young pitcher that's drawing comparisons to Pedro. Mm -hmm. I mean, they really need to show up this year, or else there's going to be uh, oh. angry s factions of the Red Sox nation. No doubt about it. Uh, I mean, and you hear it on talk radio around here every day. I mean, it's it's uh, it 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 always seems even when things are going well, it sounds like the sky is falling. My Certainly. sneaky prediction for the American League this year is that the New York Yankees are going to win the American League East. Yeah, I mean, who can argue with that at this point? And doesn't it devastate everybody who roots against them? Because they absolutely what a what that a young what a miracle! Is just great. I know you can't yeah. argue with that. I mean, Threw a no hitter the other day in spring. It's spring training, but still, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's amazing. They kind of did what the Red Sox needed to do. I mean, they traded mm -hmm. Chapman and then just signed him right back. I think the Red Sox should have done that with Lester. I think that would, I agree. that'll be looked at as one of the big misses because you consider what Lester got paid and now what they're paying a David Price and what they're going to have to pay Chris Sale to keep him there. And, you know, <laughs> the Yankees bested them in that in the finances department. Oh, no doubt about it. But, you know, the Red Sox kind of operate like a, a, a Premier League soccer team in so many ways. And, mm -hmm. you know, they'll they'll write it off. And then, yeah, the next year they'll win the World Series. So do you think Bartolo is going to hit two or more home runs this year? It's going to depend on how the new ballpark plays. I'll be very <laughs> curious to see how it plays. We got our first. That's assuming that. the. <laughs> well, he's obviously going to hit one. Oh, obviously. I mean, he's it's obviously going to double his career total. I think yeah. two, three. It's going to be like the launching pad, just like at Atlanta Stadium. Yeah, although, you know, Turner Field didn't get enough credit for playing as a pitcher's park. I mean, they whether they intended to or not, because construction in Atlanta is, you know, shooting mm -hmm. from the hip. Uh, you know, Turner Field was this Olympic stadium before it became a baseball-only stadium. Mm -hmm. But it really played played big, and it played big to our, you know, big three at that time with Glavin, Maddox, Smoltz. So, you know, I I think the launching pad gets gets uh was was Fulton County for sure, but yes, yeah. got a bad rapid turn. I don't know. It, you know what's funny about the new Braves Stadium is that the construction is not near complete on what's around it. So you know the dynamics of 
wind gusts and all those things are going to change over the years as they build more hotels. So yeah, (laughs) we'll see what happens. They have had a terrible spring though. Braves faithful, hoping for all these young pieces to kind of show up. Uh, Seems like it might still be another couple years away. Young and old. It's, it's quite the team. Well, with Bartolo there, there's our power surge, you know, I'm I'm thinking they'll bat him fifth or sixth, kind of protect Freddie so he can see some better pitches. (laughs) I mean, that's really the big signing of the off season for our hitting. Yes, I I would think so. (laughs) All right. Well, Clayton, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, talking with you. Thanks for having Um, me. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. We'll definitely have to do this again sometime soon. Um, again, the book Overcoming Adversity, uh, the Tony Canigliero Award available on Amazon and you write for downthedrive.com, uh, SB, yes, Na- I do. SB Nation's uh, Cincinnati Bearcats blog. Um, and you can be followed on Twitter at Clayton Trudor. That's yeah. C-L-A-Y-T-O-N-T-R-U-T-O-R. T-R-U-T-O-R. So Clayton yes. Trudor. Um, but, yes. but uh, follow on Twitter at Clayton Trutor. Uh, good stuff, man. You're a good follow and uh, really enjoying the book. And uh, just best of luck to you. Good luck with your PhD. I got. I need to know what the what are you, what is the PhD on? Well, it has an Atlanta theme to it. Oh, I'm I'm all it deals, ears. It deals with the um, it deals with the uh, effort of civic leaders in Atlanta to bring professional sports to the city in the 1960s and the public response to it in the 60s and 70s. Well, there you go. I'm, I'm in. We'll have to talk about that some other time. We definitely will. Much more to talk about. We'll have to do this again real soon. So, But uh, best of luck to you, man. Continued success, and uh, we'll talk to you the next time. All right. Sounds good, Tucker. Thanks again. Take care. All right. Thanks so much. Um, you can find the Running the Bases podcast on SoundCloud and on iTunes. Check us out online at runningthebases.com. Uh, Looking forward to the start of the new baseball season. Coach and I will be back with our season preview uh, week from Monday. Um, And thank you to everyone following us on Twitter at Running the Base. Like us on Facebook. We even have an Instagram now uh, at Running the Bases on Instagram. So for Tiger Wells, uh, this is the Running the Bases podcast off the bag. Coming into home and we're safe and we'll see you next time.